sermon series that we have been on, starting last uh, Sunday, is basically based on this book on Christian. Okay? Uh, just a brief one-minute sort of bio of this book. This book was written by a couple of folks who work for an organization that does statistical sociological analysis of culture in America. And basically the age group that they looked at, for those of you that are like, well, I'm younger than that, or actually I'm a lot older than that, so it's irrelevant to me, I would argue that the age group that they studied actually is reflective of what's really going on in lots of other parts of age groups in our culture today. They interviewed 18 to 29-year-olds primarily, okay? That's the generation they looked at. But basically, the news isn't good because the perception in America, in North America, of the church of Christianity is not so, well, it's not very good, frankly. Uh, Christians are uh, known more for what they are against than what they are for, one of the major premises of the book. We are known for what we oppose rather than what it is that we are for. We're sort of known as the anti-group. So put anti-whatever, anti-homosexual, anti-abortion, anti-and various other things. Uh, Christianity is getting a bad rap, so much so that when people think of Christians and Christianity, they no longer think of what Christ intended for the church. And the news isn't very good for those of you that, that, that are actively engaging the world out there because you know that you're coming up against the same perceptions. And so when you introduce yourself at some point and people know that you are a Christian, all of a sudden, <laughs> barriers go up. And people admit that they're emotional and there barriers that go up when they find out that you're a Christian because there are various associations. Last week we talked about how the perception of the church is that it's judgmental. This week I want to talk to you about the perception that the church or Christians in North America are sheltered. Let's just take a poll. How many of you guys agree? How many of you agree? Raise your hands. Hi, hi. See? That, see, that's the beautiful thing. You know, if I, this sermon, I don't have to convince you that, by the way, those of you guys that have books and you brought them, you're reading them, I'm, I'm really glad. Look, the perception of church in America is that, is that it's sheltered. There, there's a phrase, a word that irritates me more than any others when, they, when people describe Christianity, and that is the Christian bubble. You're bubble boy. <laughs> We're bubble. You're bubble girl. We're known as a group of people who are, and the image is, of course, this aloof, insulated sort of thing where, where we, we just stay detached from the, the, the culture and the world. We have our own little subculture of our own language, of our own music, of our own stuff. And we talked about this last fall throughout the uh, book of Daniel. And, and we, we fail to engage the world. The perception, you guys, is that we would rather sit in the comforts of our own home reading a apocalyptic literature like left behind books rather than engaging a world uh, that's hurting. The the perception is that many of us in Christianity were content with sort of a a fire insurance policy as N.T. Wright said that we know we're going to go to heaven well the rest of the world goes to hell but who cares right because I'm okay I'm secure I'm going to heaven. The perception is that that we're afraid. We're afraid of being polluted by the world out there. The, the fear is that we don't want to venture out to hurting and broken world because of what it might do to us. 
Now, here's the big problem, you guys, with this as we engage our culture. Sociologists have, have noticed that this generation is perhaps the most protected generation in history. Now, follow with me, okay? This generation is a generation of mandatory car seats, okay? I'm not that old, but I'm old enough. And when I was growing up, there weren't no such thing as car seats. Maybe it was just my Korean family. I don't know. And we just didn't know any better, right? But I got to tell you what, okay? My wife and I have installed car seats for Parker and Sophie, okay? I think, I think we can get hit by a Mack truck and they'd be okay, okay? This sucker is, is strapped on. It's like 10 inches thick. They've got barriers and all kinds of stuff over. It's a generation of cars. It's a generation of airbags. We have cars with like, 50 airbags. Why do we need 50 airbags, right? Why do we fit those things anyway? We're a generation of banned and smoking and other things in public places. You can't, if you're a smoker, feel bad for you because there aren't a whole lot of places you can smoke now, right? Community. I mean, this is the most protected generation ever. Watch this now. Hence, it's a generation that's constantly pushing the envelope of safety. So we have shows like Survivor. Big deal. Come on. That's like, a, that's like a glorified missions trip. You know what I mean? I don't know why people make such a big deal out of it. It's a big deal. 30 days out. And... We have shows like Fear Factor. Ooh. You know, I'm going, I eat that stuff for dinner. What's the, what's the big deal, you know? Our culture, our culture is hungry, you guys, and thirsty because they're tired of, listen, Talk to the people that are out there. They'll tell you. They're tired of the safe life. This is the generation that gave name to bungee cord jumping, skydiving. Why? Because people are tired, sick and tired of the protected, safe life. And in their attempts to stretch, to to find something that's going to sort of recharge their lives, they're looking to anything and everything but Christianity. Why? Christianity is boring. Christianity is safe. Christianity is sheltered. Christianity is lame. You know what's really sad about that, though, is when I look at my Bible, the life, the Christian life that Jesus painted, actually, I think our culture would, would, would actually be interested in. Are you tracking this morning? I think it's a life that I, Jesus, as we'll see today, pictured a Christian life where it was anything but sheltered, anything but safe, anything but comfortable. Let me show you. Open your Bibles to, to Luke chapter 10. It's a passage that was uh, sung today via spoken word. And you know what? There's some passages maybe for some of us that are so familiar that we just kind of we just kind of familiarize ourselves and we fail to catch the, the significance of what it is that Jesus says. I want to highlight to you a couple of things as we read this passage. And I want you to pay very close attention to whether this jives or resonates with a sheltered, comfortable Christian life. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. And this, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. In some translations, it says 70. And I'll tell you the significance of the number a little bit. And sent them two by two ahead of them to every town and place where he was about to go. Now he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Everybody look up. We know that verse. We've sung that verse. We're familiar with that verse. And when we read that verse, 
harvest, we kind of go, oh, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We go, woohoo! Pay attention to what he says right after. Pay attention to what he says right after. Who says what? Go where? I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Okay, rewind. Harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Does that sound sheltered to you? Does that sound comfortable to you? Does this sound peace, joy, and happiness to you? How do we miss this? If you think this is kind of an isolated incident, you know, Jesus was having a bad day. He's just kind of, he's just kind of mad. And so he decided to, let me show you another passage where he actually prayed for all of us. He prays for all of us. John chapter 17. And listen to his prayer for what you and I were to experience and expect. John 17. We'll come back to Luke 10. Put your hand right there and go to John 17. Verse 13. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world. Jesus to praying to God so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have not given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Church, church, look up. Does that sound like a sheltered thing to you? Does it sound like a comfortable life to you? Does it sound like a peace, joy, happiness life to you? He's saying you're going to be hated. And then he goes on. I have given them your word and the world is, okay, I read that already. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now, Jesus, shelter life, that's take me out of the world, which is what we're doing. Jesus, shelter life is, let me be hunkered down in my own little fortress called the Christian subculture. And Jesus says what? That's not my thing. My thing is I want you to be out there. Well, I'm going to pray for protection, but protection from Satan. Does it sound like sheltered life to you? Does it sound like a comfortable life to you? They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent out into the world. Listen, if you're not a Christian today, I'm so glad you're here because you need to hear this. Christianity is anything but sheltered. Christian life is anything but safe. Christian life is anything but happy, joy, contentment, and... Look, Christian life brings you some joy, okay? But it's joy in the midst of, not out of. Did you get that? We long for joy out of. No, Jesus says, I give you peace in the midst of. So let's rewind, shall we? What kind of a Christian life does yours look? What would your neighbors say? What would your friends say? What would your classmates say? What would your coworkers say? Sheltered? Safe? Okay, let's go back to Luke 10, okay? Uh, and listen to what he says. Verse 16, verse 16. 
Uh, he who listens to you, this is the last end of his sort of charge to them, listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Again, does this sound like, okay, you get broken record, right? You guys get the point. Look what happens in verse 17. Then the 72 return with joy. Now catch this. Listen, listen, listen. Okay? Because this is a huge part of today. They return with joy. What is it that they have been sent to? They've been sent to demons, like lambs among wolves, hard things, broken things, tough things. And they return, not, oh, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. They return, not, oh, I, they return with what? They're bouncing up and down for joy. How's your joy life? Rewind. What's your Christian life look like? And then, Joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And then Jesus does something that I've scratched my head for, for for years and years and years. Because they return with joy, even the demons obey us in your name. And Jesus should have said, I told you so. Isn't that great? Jesus should have said, that's phenomenal. God is using you. Jesus should have said something along those lines. Instead, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And for those of you that are thinking, he's meaning, I saw Satan fall. You have triumph. No, he's saying, listen, you're about to make a mistake that somebody I knew made a long time ago. And he was ruined because of that. Why? I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, here's the however, and why Jesus says, watch out. Here's the however. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay? What does this passage have to teach us? There's so much to cover, so let's just jump in. What does this passage have to teach us about Christian life, both individual and corporate? What does this have to teach us about the church and the role of the church? If it's not shelter, then what? What this passage teaches us, there's a number of things that this passage teaches us, but you got to have some background in order for fully understand and appreciate what is happening here. If you read Luke chapter 10, if you read Luke chapter 10 and Luke chapter 9 together, okay, if you have only Luke chapter 9 and without Luke chapter 10, then here's what you get. Because here's what happens in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, it's almost an identical passage. But in Luke chapter 9, guess who Jesus sends out? In Luke chapter 9, if you look, Jesus sends out the apostles of 12 to do the exact same things that Jesus is doing. Casting out demons, healing the sick, preaching about the kingdom. And then in Luke chapter 10, Jesus comes right around and he sends out the 70 and the 72. Now we're going to get to the significance of the number in a moment, but here's what you would get if you only had Luke chapter 9 with Luke chapter 10. What you would get is people that are in mission, people that are about ministry, people that are out there engaging the world are the seminarians. The apostles, of course, the 12, you know, the professionals, the spiritual elites. What happens in Luke chapter 10? Jesus is very intentional. He knows what he's doing. He sends out the 12 in Luke 9. And then he comes right around Luke chapter 10 and says, just in case you all think it's just about the 12, the apostles, the spiritual elites, I want you to know what this mission is for. I'm sending out the 72. 
and I'm giving them actually the exact same authority. Cast out demons, heal the sick, preach about the kingdom. I'm giving them authority that's greater than the prophets of old. I'm giving them authority that's greater than John the Baptist. I'm giving them authority that's even greater than me, Jesus says. And we'll see why in a moment. Why? What does this passage teach us? Luke chapter 10. You know what this teaches us, you guys? Everyone is sent on a mission. Everyone is sent on a mission. What's the significance of number 70 or 72 in some manuscripts? Here's where you find the number throughout biblical revelation. In in Genesis chapter 10, where you find the table of the nations. Table of the nations, symbolic of the entire world. People of the world. You find 70 nations. In Genesis chapter 47, where we see the beginnings of what would become the nation of Israel, it says, with the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. Exodus 1, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. The whole point is that biblically, this is huge, symbolic, biblically the number 70, 72 represents everybody. The whole world. You can't get away from this when you read scripture and it's such a fundamental principle. It's foundational to what it is at the Christian life and that is this, you guys. God never calls you in without what? Sending you out. God never blesses you but that you might be a blessing unto others. God never says, come in to you without also saying, no, get the heck out. Are you tracking? Well, where does it say that, Peter? Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, come in, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky. I will bless you beyond all measure, to which many of us go, I can get on board with that. But then right away, what does it say? He says, now go to a land I will show you. Moses, Exodus 3. Moses, come in. Come closer. The glory of God. The glory of God. I want to show you my back. I want you to experience the glory of God. But afterwards, he says what? Now, Moses, time to go and deliver my people. Isaiah 6. Isaiah, come in, Isaiah. I will touch your lips. I will heal you. I will cleanse you. Why? So that you can... He says what? Now who will go for me? Verse 6. And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. And the last words of Jesus in Matthew 28, the instruction to his disciples is what? Therefore, go. Every Christian is on a mission. Every Christian is sent. The word sent in verse 2 of, uh, of Luke chapter 10. In, Greek, in Latin, it's the word missio from which we get the word mission. And in Greek, it's the word apostolane from which you get the word apostle, which is one who is sent. Do you get that? Do you realize that God has called you in in order to send you out? Because God has blessed you so that you could be a blessing unto others. Now, you guys, question, how are we doing with this in North America? How is the church in America doing embracing this biblical truth? I would say not so, ve- not so very well. Not so very well. Not, not, not so well. Not so well. <laughs> Do you know what I hear all the time? And I'm not going to pick on you guys. Some of you. Do you know what I hear all the time when people visit our church? The number one question when they come and say, Peter, I'm looking for a church. For once, I want to hear somebody go, I'm looking for a church. I want to make sure new communities in. I'm looking for a church where I can give my life. 
I'm looking for a church where I could give myself radically to those that are in need. I'm looking for a church that I can pour out my energy and gifts to. Now, is this that kind of church? For once, I'm waiting for somebody to ask that. You know what I get 99.9% of the time? I'm looking for a church that what meets my meets my needs. Another way they ask is, I'm looking for a church where I can be fed. I want to remind this church this morning that they say that 60% of people in America are overweight. (laughs) And I wonder if that also applies to our spiritual lives. Is it really about being fed Is it really about finding a church that will meet your needs? Because here's what's happened as a result of that mentality. We've completely lost our focus of realizing that the church exists to be sent out. The church exists to serve the world. The church exists to touch a hurting planet for Jesus, not to become the focus itself. Because when the church becomes a focus itself, we get fat Christians who sit on the pews week in and week out, and their sole cry and longing is that the sermon meet my needs, that the worship kind of hit with me. Okay, so you say, but isn't it fair that we look for a church that will meet my need where I can grow? Absolutely. That's your expectation. Here's our expectation. It goes both ways. You give your life in radical service. Can I ask you guys something? Are we becoming a church where insiders could come and bond and socialize? Or are we becoming a church where those who are outside and excluded could come and be embraced and loved? Is this the kind of church where people who are seeking after God and searching could come and find the God that they're looking for? Is this the kind of church where those who are hurting and marginalized would come and find the help that they're looking for? Is this the kind of church, you guys, where people who are dealing with extreme loneliness, and I meet them all the time, and their constant cry is, I am desperately longing for deep relationships, and I don't know if I could find that at New Community. Can we be a church where our eyes are so focused out that those who are lonely would be embraced and find true community? Just one little practical kind of thing to throw out there, why we wrestle with this. Statistics say within two, three years when a person becomes Christian, they literally lose contact with almost all of their non-Christian friends. Within two, three years, we lose contact with all those that we spent life with and did life with. Now, here's the thing. Again, I understand. People say, well, that's because, you know, I don't want to be influenced. I want to make sure I grow. I want to make sure. Fine. That's great. That's biblical. But you know what? The only reason why you withdraw is so that you can then be sent out. It's a real practical thing, real practical. Some of you need to decide today, who are those non-Christian friends that I just cut off because I wanted to grow as a Christian. I wanted to be fed. I wanted to be discipled. In other words, when we talk about being sent out, instead of going, well, I wonder who, start right there, the people that you already know and who know you. 
Every Christian is on a mission. The second thing that this passage teaches us is that every Christian is on a powerful mission. Every Christian is on a powerful mission. And I love this, you guys. This might be my favorite part of this passage. Notice the 72 come back and they say, Jesus, the demons submit to us in your name. In your name. Jesus, we're able to do these amazing things. And Jesus says to them, that's because I have given you authority, right? I've given you authority. Now, what does it mean that they were doing these things in Jesus' name and Jesus has given them authority? I don't even presume to explain this well, so I'm just going to try. So you guys try and follow along, okay? Here's what I think Jesus means when he says, you go in my name and I've given you authority to do those things. There's a section, there's a, uh, there's a part in, in, in the book of Ephesians where Paul says to the church in Ephesus, Christ came and preached to you who were near and preached to you who were far. Christ came and preached those who were near or far. Now, historically, and we know this to be true, Jesus never went physically to Ephesus. He never did. And yet Paul says, Christ came and preached. Christ came and preached to you those who were. He was literally saying, it's as if Christ himself came and preached via the people that preached about Christ. Now, this, this is a, an astounding thing that if you and I could wrap our brains around. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you go in my name, and it's not going to say, you know, when you're doing something, go, I come at you in Jesus' name. You don't need to do that. When you go, when you go, knowing that you're going representing Christ to whatever it is that you're doing, Jesus says, there is an inseparable, inseparable link between you and me. Follow me. Inseparable link between you and me when you go in my name. Now, so when you go, my power is going to come through you in such a way. And don't think all mysterious Pentecostal. No, he's saying my power comes through you in such a way that when you hold the hand of that person and you're, you're just simply holding him or her because they're hurting, he's saying that there's such an inseparable link between me and, me and you that, that, that it is as if my power is coming through you. So when you speak, it's as if I'm speaking. When you care, it's as if I'm caring. When you, when you embrace, it's as if I am embracing. So whatever you do, Scripture has tons of things. Give a cup of cold water in my name. Jesus says, inseparable link. Hold someone's hand in my name, inseparable link. Speaking truth in love in my name, inseparable link. Visiting those who are in prison in my name. Feeding those who are hungry in my name. Clothing those who are, who are naked in my name. And here's the cool part. You ready? And this is what it means, powerful mission. When we do that, People out there don't say, wow, doesn't she look great? People out there say, doesn't God look great? People out there don't go, wow, doesn't she look good? People out there go, doesn't God look good? People out there don't go, look at this hands-on, self-sacrificial, giving, intentional generation. God looks like a intentional self-sacrificial, giving all of himself kind of a God. Are you tracking? Now imagine this. Imagine if just in a church like this, 500 plus of us, this Sunday, you walk out and for this week, you lived your life, went in Jesus' name with his authority and did the kinds of things that Christ calls us to. Imagine if every one of us in those instances, in those places, regardless of what we're doing, instead of people going, doesn't she look great? People said, doesn't God look great? 
Instead of us going, doesn't she? Instead, people said, doesn't God look good? Instead of people saying, he is such a hands-on, caring, self-sacrificial kind of person, people saw God who is hands-on, self-sacrificial, giving himself kind of a God. Now check this out, you guys. Earlier I said, Jesus had your audacity to say, you're going to do even greater things than these. In John chapter 14, there's this passage where he literally says to them, I am sending you my name, and I'm going to give you authority to do even greater things than I, to which you go, how in the world are we going to do things greater than Jesus? Listen to this. Jesus was fully God, but he was fully man. You know what that means? That means he was limited to time and space, just like all of us. And that means he could only be at one place at one time. The church of Jesus Christ, made up of millions and millions of people, going out into this community, this city, and beyond in his name, representing Christ and everywhere they go the testimony of people is isn't God great isn't God good isn't God an incredible God imagine the witness imagine the testimony people ask me do you really believe Peter that your small dinky little church could actually be part of influencing and turning Chicago upside down for Jesus? I go, absolutely. Not because of our Sunday services, not because of men and ministries, because I believe in you and us. That where we go, we represent. Do you believe? Do you know what this would, I'm sorry, I'm so like exasperated, I gotta sit. Do you know, do you know what this would mean? Just even for our community alone. Do you realize what this would mean if you realize, and Jesus is clear, he says, anything you do, anything you do in my name, anything you do, giving a cup of cold water, a hug, holding somebody's hand, listening to someone who's hurting, feeding them, clothing them, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, anything you do in my name, you are going and doing it like nobody else because when you go, you are going in my name and my authority and my power goes with you in such a way that when that person is done with you, he doesn't see you. He sees God. He sees God. What could give you a greater sense of significance than that? What could give us a greater sense of joy than that? Do you realize the amount of potential that you have in his name? In his name. We've been sent on a powerful mission. Powerful mission. Representing him. And, and here's something else about, about, about this whole thing that really, really, to me, is, 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 is very important. Every single one of us, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Do you know what that's saying? Not only are we sent on a powerful mission representing Jesus, God is saying, look, you are unique. I've prepared you. I've equipped you. Your life experiences, who you are, where you grew up, your, the language you speak, the culture you grew up in, the good things that happen in your life, the bad things that happen in your life, your race, your ethnicity, your culture, everything about you, God has brought to a place where he could use you uniquely just as you are to go in his name. Let me put it this way. There are certain demons that only you can cast out that nobody else can. There are certain demons that only you, nobody else can cast out. That's what God says when he says, you are my workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. What can give you a greater sense of significance than that? 
This is why I, 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 I talk until I'm blue in the face up here. We need every single one of you. And you guys are thinking, well, you need to say that because everybody needs to be part of this. No, I literally say you need, we need every one of you because there are certain things that God has equipped, prepared you to do to go in his name that nobody else can. Nobody else can. We have been sent on a powerful mission. And lastly, we've been sent on a joyful mission. Look at the text again. In verse 17, it tells us the disciples returned with joy, with joy. And what's striking about this, and you guys, I highlighted it. It's kind of a no-brain up front. What's striking about this is that Jesus tells them in verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, so go. But then he says right in verse 3, I am sending you out like what? Like lambs among wolves. And in John chapter 17, Jesus also has the audacity to say, I'm sending you out to where? Hard things, broken things. People will hate you. Satan is going to attack you and all kinds of hardships will be faced. In other words, you can't get around this, you guys. The church, the body of Christ, the followers of Jesus, we have a mission. And here's the thing. Our mission is not to the comfortable things. Our mission is not to the cushion and things. Our mission is not to the... Uh, the easy things. Jesus is actually calling us as a church, individuals and corporate, to the hard things of life. But you got to scratch your head because Jesus says, I'm doing that. Why? So that you would have joy. I say something very firm and yet gentle. Many of us in this room, we have no joy because we have no mission. no joy because we have no mission how long is it going to take for us to come to realize joy not that toy not that car the house joy not that relationship joy not the school I get into joy not the money I make joy the people I hang with joy nothing Jesus says if you have no mission there is no joy he's absolutely right Do you have anything to lay down your life for? Do you have anything to give your life for? Is there something where you can say, I am willing to die for that cause? Because it is to that extent to which Jesus says, then you will know joy. C.S. Lewis. He says, if you don't ever want your heart broken, by the hard things, broken things. If you don't ever want your heart broken, because this mission requires the reality that our hearts will be broken. Our hearts will be broken. But he says, if you don't ever want your heart broken, you have an alternative. He says, lock it up in a little casket of selfishness. Turn the key and throw that key away. And he says, in that little casket of selfishness, Christian, your heart will never be broken. It will never be saddened. It will never mourn. But it's also in that little casket that your heart will become unbreakable. That your heart will become irredeemable. He says the alternatives are very simple. You risk your life in sacrificial mission for Jesus knowing that your heart will be broken so you could experience joy. You realize how convoluted the kingdom is? Think about it. Jesus says, it is those who mourn who will be 
comforted. It is those who are persecuted for sake of righteousness that they shall inherit the kingdom. And the same way Jesus says, it is to those whose hearts are broken over and over and over again, broken over and over and over again at the loss, at the brokenness, that he or she will know joy. If you go, that doesn't make any sense. What about the kingdom life makes sense to us from a worldly perspective? It's countercultural, upside-down living. So can I ask you a question? How's your joy life? How's your joy life? See, the reality is, I got to be honest with you guys. I can't, I can't get away from this, you know. I, I know I get that call from Angela office saying, oh, so-and-so called. And I, the thought going through my mind is, I don't want to talk to her. It's like the 10th conversation. She's going to go on and on and on and on and on. And I just don't want to. So, Angela, tell them I'm not here. Well, actually, I don't lie like that. I, I go, I go, I go, right? I don't lie. I go, I go tell them I'm preoccupied, Right? I gotta be honest with you guys. There are times when I go, God, what is the use and purpose of constantly giving of our lives for the most broken and the most marginalized in this community? When, when we know, and this is, I'm being, I, I can't be more honest, when we know, God, that they're just gonna go back on their addiction, God. And I don't want my heart broken again. I don't want my expectations lowered again, God. I don't want to, I don't want to go through that again. So I'd rather not. To which the Holy Spirit comes and says, then you will not know joy. I made it to, I meditated on these statistics this entire week and uh, I had to stop literally every every a minute or so just to kind of just to kind of get my bearings because you guys if you and I would just open our eyes not just Logan Square but all over Chicago if you and, I, and all over the world if you and I just open our eyes and look at the world you and I would realize what Jesus meant when he said the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few listen to what he means Children and gun violence. Let me just, in a single year, 3,012 children and teens are killed by gunfire in the U.S. 3,012. Break it down. That's one child every three hours killed by gunfire. A child killed by gunfire every day. More than 50 children killed by gunfire every week. Between 1979 and 2001, gunfire killed 90,000 children and teens in the United States. That's more children and teens dying from gunfire than from cancer, pneumonia, influenza, asthma, HIV, and AIDS combined. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Nearly 8% of kids in urban junior high and senior high schools, 8% city like Chicago, miss at least one day of school each month because they're afraid to attend school. And they have good reasons for it. Why? National School Boards Association estimates that 135,000 guns are brought to school each day. Wow. 135,000 guns. Is it surprising the kids in our inner city schools and schools around here say, I don't want to go to school, mom. I don't want to go to school, dad. Domestic violence. 
Over three million women are physically abused by their husbands or boyfriend every year around the world. One in three women have been beaten, coerced into sex or otherwise. 31% of American women report being abused physically or sexually at some point in their lives. And here's the other tragic part of this. In the national survey, 6,000 U.S. families, 50% of the men who assaulted their wives also abused their children. Five to 10 million children. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Poverty, growth of poverty in the United States, distinguished by extraordinary wealth. There are six million poor individuals, not only a few others, but their families. These poor can't work, they can't vote, and many of them don't even go to school. The six million poor in America are children under the age of six. Between 1979 and 1994, the number of children under the age of six who were living in poverty in the U.S. grew twofold almost from 3.5 million to 6.1 million children. Homeless? Estimates fluctuate, but some say that over half a million people in the United States are homeless. And it's increased considerably in the last decade according to, uh, because of two factors. One, shortage of affordable housing. And secondly, Increase in poverty. And increase in poverty due to two reasons. People are losing their jobs because manual labor jobs that people are able to work are being shipped overseas. And they're replaced by high-tech, high-skilled, read into that, jobs. The homeless in America are not disheveled old men who are drunk or mental patients. The homeless in America, 40% of them are families with kids. Average age, parents, 35 plus, who can't find a job. That's homeless in America. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Family, family structures, I don't need to go deep into this, you know this, one or two marriages end in divorce, dramatically increasing the single parent family homes. Adding to the situation is that currently one third of children born in the United States are born to unmarried mothers. In 1960, the ratio was just one out of 20, give you some perspective. And in some of the major cities like, the, like Chicago, almost two thirds of all infants are born sometimes in communities to unmarried women. Two thirds of kids will grow up in single family homes. And these are kids who will grow up that when the pastor talks about the love of God, the heavenly father, they look at you like, I have no idea what that's about. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Substance abuse and addiction. In a typical month, in case you're thinking, oh, that's the poor, the marginalized. No, no, no. These are now people in your age, your educational class, your socioeconomic class. In a typical month, more than 20% of those between ages 18 to 29, more than 20% have used illegal or non-prescription drugs. During the same 30-day period, more than 25% say, I got drunk, completely wasted. And one out of seven admits to dealing with an addiction of one kind or another. And I also don't want to forget the overlooked. Many in our generation live with an utter sense of desperation. Suicide is the third leading cause of death. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among people aged 15 to 29. In a 2005 study, one out of six high school students had contemplated suicide. One out of six, while one in every 12 actually attempted it. Look, (laughs) we have a choice. 
We could say, individually and corporately as a church, we could say, that's the harvest, by the way, that Jesus was talking about. When he said, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. He meant that. He meant the world around us with the multiplicity of needs. And can I just say something that's just grating on me? Why are Christians looking to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party as if they're going to solve the problem? Why do we think politicians are going to solve the problem? This is a kingdom of God church issue, not politicians issue. I'm sick and tired of it. Why are Christians thinking that it's about politics? It isn't about politics. It's about the kingdom and the kingdom value that says, the last and least of these, as you go in my name, I go with you. The church in America and all over the world, God looks to to solve social ills, not our government. They're not kingdom of God. So I ask you a question this morning. You could choose to live a sheltered, comfortable life, devoid of pain, hurt, suffering, broken heart, and experience no joy. Or you can live the life Jesus said when he said, I have come so that you may have joy and joy to the full. Can I just, uh, I, 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 I need to say this this morning. You know, we have been on this building campaign and, and, and I had a number of you guys very gently and graciously say, Pastor Peter, we're really struggling with the fact that the church is spending that much money to buy a building renovated so we could be in the community because couldn't we just give that money to the poor? Look at all the need, to which I say, yes, we can. But it's not an either or, it's a both and. Let me just, let me, let me, let me just, can, 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 can I just say this? Look, I don't know about you guys in this church, but you know what? I'm here for the next 15, 20, 30 years. Okay, you might be single, and you might be going, do we need to give that money to the poor? Now, if, if you want to be here for the next 25, 30 years, that will change that conversation. Do you know why? Because if we're going to be here for 25, 30 years, you don't solve the issue of poverty by giving money to the poor. You solve the issue of poverty by looking at the holistic problem of why poverty exists. And do you know why? Do you know why poverty exists? It's not because they're lazy. Do you know why poverty exists? It's because there needs to be job training. Is there because small businesses need to be started up in our community? That's why we're here. We can give money to the homeless, sure. But what good is that going to do? The reason why they're homeless is because there's shortage of affordable housing. So how are we going to solve that issue? We buy up real estate land and we provide affordable housing to people to restore their dignity to know that they can contribute. Why are we buying this church? Because we are here for the next two, three generations transforming this community from the inside out. I would love to build a big old sanctuary in that building so I can only preach once for like the next 10 years, you know? So we can fit like a thousand people. No, I'm going to have to preach more than two, three times sometimes. Why? Because the sanctuary in that building is just going to be a small part of the larger ministry of the entire community. So if you want to know why we're buying the building, I'll tell you why. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. One last thing. 
If you have any doubts about giving to the building campaign because, well, I feel like I'm contributing to you know, just building structure, I don't want you to give. We don't need a penny from you. But if you believe that for the next 20, 30, 40 years, because of that building and its ability to transform the entire community as we do kingdom-minded ministries, then I want you to open your checkbooks and give generously and radically to see God doing his kingdom work. Okay, so I'm done with that portion, okay? I'm done with that portion. I need to get that out. But I need to get to this last part. Natalie, wherever you are, if you would come on up, please. Listen, listen. And I also had a conversation this morning. Listen, listen. I had somebody say, I had somebody say, you know, Pastor Peter, every time you talk about the kingdom and doing stuff and Harvest Planet for we're on a mission, blah, blah, I get really excited for that. But you know, every time you talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and our relationship with him and how he's redeemed me, I just don't, I, why do I do this? Why do I spend each Sunday? Because here's the thing. Great mission, you're sent, you get yourself up, say, I can do it for Jesus, and you go. If you do it for the wrong reasons, you will hear the voice of Jesus say to you, and I saw Satan fall like lightning. What was Jesus getting at? The disciples are coming back, and where's their joy? And their joy isn't, I'm happy, happy. Their joy is their central consolation, their foundation, their anchor. Jesus is looking at their anchor, looking at their foundation. And what he sees is the group of people who find their identity in, I have casted out demons, I'm somebody. Jesus is looking at people who have healed the sick, and they found their certainty, their worth in, I have healed people. And Jesus says, if you live your entire life anchoring, centering yourself upon fact that you're doing these wonderful things for the kingdom, that's spiritual poison. Why do you do it? You know what Jesus says? He says, you do it because your names are already written in heaven. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that there's this big old book in heaven with Peter Hall-Hotted, you know, at the gates of Pearly, whatever. Come on in. No, the book of heaven, to me at least, is this truth that every single one of us were born into this world, desperately long to find a name for ourselves, a name. And you and I know this. We don't name ourselves. Michael doesn't walk around going, I'm Michael Washington. I'm smart. I'm somebody. Michael doesn't do that. Why? We don't do that. Why? We don't name ourselves. We want other people to name us. We want other people to look at me and go, you're somebody. You're special. I like you. I think you're a person of worth. And we look for it in everywhere, anywhere. And Jesus says, when you look for it anywhere, everywhere, but the fact that Jesus has given you a name. He has given you a name. We're out there trying to make a name for ourselves. Blood, sweat, and tears. And Jesus says, why? I've given you a name with my blood, my sweat, and my tears on the cross. And as a result, your name is beloved. Your name is child of God. Your name is righteous one. The only thing that will give you perseverance to go out in the harvest field, have your heart broken, and yet pour out your life in radical service is if the foundation of your entire life is he has given me a name. He has given me a name. Bow your heads with me.
this morning, as I was preparing how I wanted to end this, I, I felt the prompting from the Spirit saying, Peter, there are men and women in your congregation, in your church, man, who are doing this. They're, they're out. They're out engaging the world in their workplaces. Some of them are out in the hardest of places, in schools that are just absolutely un, 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 unimaginable to teach in. They're working with the most broken of men and women. They are out there, Peter, living their lives. They're out there in mission. They're out there finding not their identity in that, but in me. They're out there, kingdom, mission, living. And I sense God saying, your church needs to honor them and pray for them and know that their work is not in vain. That as they go and get up at 6.30 tomorrow morning and go back out into the mission field, they need the assurance that they do not go alone, that an entire church walks with them. And so this morning, the way I wanted to end was I wanted to have those of you that are in need of prayer, child of God, kingdom mission, man, woman of God, radically living your life, pouring your life for the least of these. Can you stand from where you are? Just right now, go ahead and stand from where you are. Need prayer, stand from where you are. Stand, we're gonna wait. Stand from where you are. Stand from where you are. Stand from where you are. Stand. Stand. We're going to wait. We're going to wait. Stand. Stand from where you are. Stand from where you are. You are in the inner city schools. You are working with abused women. You are working with children who are orphans. You work. Stand from where you are. And, and, and we just wanted to spend some time praying with you. You see these brothers and sisters, for those of you that are sitting next to them, open your eyes. Will you stand with them and put your hands and your arms around them? Put your hands, arms around. Let's be the church. Church, be the church. Put your arms around them. And you lift them up. You lift them up in prayer. This isn't to say that their mission is more important. It's more spiritual. This isn't about hierarchy. This is simply us coming around and saying, man, God has called you into a rough, tough place. We want to pray for you. We want to pray with you. Just lift that brother and that sister up right as you're standing. You don't even have to know their name. Just lift them up. It's children of God and pray for them. Lift your voices and pray for them. Say, God, be with her. God, be with him. Use them this week. Strengthen them. Uphold them, God. Enable them, God. Empower them, God. Bless them, God. Infuse their hearts with hope, God. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. To the least of these, God, to the hardest of places. 
that our joy might be full. God, the way that you call us is the way of the upside down, inverted, counter-cultural, paradigm-shifting values and ways of the world. And God, as we are in the midst of one of the most broken, hurting communities and cities in all of the world, our desire and our prayer, God, as we lift up our brothers and sisters this morning is that you would be with them, that you would enable them, that you would strengthen them, God, that you would uphold them, God, that they would not grow weary in doing good, they would not grow weary, God, and become discouraged at their call. They will continue to live, continue to grow, continue to give, continue to sacrifice, continue to lay down their lives for the last and least of these. We lift our brothers and sisters up unto you. Church, can we all stand together? Let's so all stand together. And for the worship team leads us in this closing song, I want us to pray together. We haven't done this in a while. Would you mind just kind of holding the pers- hands of the person standing next to you? Hold the hands of the person standing next to you. This is not about an individual call. This has to be an individual and yet also a corporate call of God. We need each other. We are the body of Christ. We are an interdependent organism. Father, we pray at this time that our church would actually fulfill the mission and the call to which you have called us in this community and the city of Chicago at large. You have called us to go into the harvest field where the workers are few. God, may we be a corporate body, the church of Jesus Christ, embracing this call to go, to go, to go. And Lord Jesus, I pray that throughout this week, this missional call will resonate and ring in our ears and in our hearts, God, to know that anything and everything that we do, you tell us to go in your name and your authority. And we do so boldly. Give us, Father, your faith. Give us, God, courage to be the church of Jesus Christ. Give us courage to step out of our comfort zones, out of our shelter lives, and to radically engage the world for Jesus, the world that desperately needs to hear and see the living God who is at work. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.